welcome back to uh, this second half of this episode, the afterword with Gavin Peacock. Gavin played for uh, QPR, Newcastle, Chelsea, among other teams. And uh, we've enjoyed a first half discussion and interview about football in general. And uh, now what we want to do is talk about uh, Gavin's move from the pitch to the pulpit. And uh, I'm referring to that deliberately because... Uh, this is Gavin's excellent new book. It's his autobiography called A Greater Glory by Gavin Peacock. Uh, the subtitle is From Pitch to Pulpit. And uh, I'm going to chat to Gavin now a bit more about what it was like being a Christian throughout his footballing career. Uh, Gavin, you mentioned in the first half of the episode that uh, you weren't brought up in a Christian home, uh, but your mother had some kind of connection to the local Methodist church. And it was uh, through one Sunday evening, I believe, you decided to go to church with her. And from that, you became a Christian at 18. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I, I was a young professional footballer. I uh, had achieved the schoolboy dream. Everything the world tells you will make you happy. You know, to have the job, the great jo job, the, the, the fame, the fortune, um, adulation and so on and uh, so I'd got that um, and and yet when I had it because football was my god if I played well I was up if I played badly I was down so I was kind of up and down that first year or so of, of being a professional footballer and you know just wrestling with the idea of well what is the true satisfaction then you know if this can't provide it consistently uh, living at home at, at the time and just one Sunday evening, my mum said, oh, I'm going to pop along to the local church and check it out. And it was 100 yards down the road. I said, I'll keep you company. Um, my mum was, wasn't a Christian. She just did it out of interest, really. And the minister said to me, uh, Gavin, would you fancy come back to my house afterwards? I have a, a youth meeting there. You know, kids your age, uh, you might find it interesting. So I, I went to that meeting. I pulled up at that meeting on that Sunday night in my Ford Escort XR3i, which was a proper 1980s sports car. <laughs> if people are watching this and they don't know what that car is, you've got to Google it because it is real 80s. And I had the hair, I had the mullet to match as well, which is hard to imagine. Um, and so I get out of that car. Uh, I'm about to walk into that living room. I'm in the in crowd. I've got everything. These kids, that they don't. And then when I walked in there, when they these seven or eight young people, when they prayed and when, when they spoke about Jesus Christ, there was a joy and a reality they had that I did not have, even though I was supposed to have everything. And it was then over the next uh, few weeks that I heard the minister unpack from the Bible, what, what is the gospel? Uh, and I realized then the crowd on the Saturday, but it was to be in a right relationship with the living God who had, who had made me, against whom I had sinned and under whose judgment I sat. And yet because of his great grace and mercy had, had provided a way back, forgiveness of sins, adoption as a son and heir through uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, death and resurrection. And I was granted repentance and faith and I, I believed. And it was just, uh, it was amazing, you know, because there was an instant change obviously born again a new heart but but football wasn't god anymore jesus was god is god and football fell into its right position and so i was soundly saved at uh, at age 18 
uh, quite the thing. You know, I'm a young professional footballer. That I hadn't even heard of any other professional footballers in the t- top league or any of the leagues that were Christians. Um, and then I had the daunting task of telling everyone at, at work. And I did. I, I, I mean, I was, guess it was fairly brave. But, I mean, you live with a bunch of guys for 10 months of the year. They know what you do at the weekend. And said, oh, I went to church. I've become a Christian. And it went round the training ground like wildfire. Or peacocks become one of those born-again Christians, as if there's any other kind. But that was a term, really, like, it was a hot-button term in the, in the, uh, yeah. in the 1980s. And uh, there was a lot of, um, you know, a bit of people poking fun at me. Uh, you, in, with the guys in the dressing room, you wear a new tie-in on a Saturday for a match day. You could find it cut into pieces at the end of the game because they're on the watch for anything new. Uh, so there was a little bit of Mickey taking, as we call it. But then they also watched to see. Cause you're not stupid, these guys. You know, they're, you're you're used to playing with guys, and you you get to tell what people's characters are like because you go to war together on the field. You know, there's a sort of certain laid bareness about it, and so they watch to see if my walk match my talk to some degree um and i had some amazing conversations with footballers over the years that you never think would, would ask about the christian faith but it was at 18 when when i got saved and and that was the big change for me and what was um one of the hardest things about being a christian in the world of professional football i think yeah people ask me is it is it difficult being a Christian and a professional athlete now my first answer is it's difficult being a Christian in any walk of life because you you know you're fighting against the world the flesh and the devil whatever wherever you are um but it, but as a Christian professional footballer I would say that the the difficulties would be the public nature of the job the scrutiny that you're under you come out and say you're a Christian it everyone's watching you not just your teammates but the crowd find out you do an interview in a magazine the newspapers know and so there's that kind of watching of your character on the field um and how you're going to respond and conduct yourself um as well as as well as off the field and you're in a and you're in an industry where everything's happening at a thousand miles an hour it is like i've said it's like war so passions that run high aggression and adrenaline is flowing so keep self-control uh and show and display christian character in the heat of the battle is is one of the great challenges that literally you know you you need to be prayerful about and being prayed for uh by others around you that you would hold firm your witness uh in in the arena did um as the years went on and you were known to be a Christian in the team, did people want to know what that meant? Did any bowlers ever like inquire and say, you know, tell me what it means to be a Christian? What, who is Jesus? What does this forgiveness of sins mean? Did yeah. you have real sort of helpful conversations like that? Yeah, I had a, a, a few, um, just in quieter moments when you're in the, in the group of players, it turns into poking fun a little bit because everyone's a bit nervous themselves so they want to make a bit of joke but one-on-one situations yes um i hosted a london christian footballers bible study at my house uh for several years when i was at chelsea and qpr on a sunday night once every five or six weeks amazing and 
I'd have, I found out who was a Christian in the London area and they would come with their wives or maybe I had some interested young guys at Chelsea or QPR and I might bring them along. So, And there was a couple of players that actually um, became Christians during that time, younger guys, not big names, but guys that I know are still professing faith now. Um, so just having the vehicle and the ability to do that, and that was a kind of a model that we really started. Christians in sport, UK were involved with that with me and they're like athletes in action as a somewhat of a comparison. Um, and uh, yeah, we set up a little bit of a model that was carried on for, for years afterwards around the UK. So yes, there were opportunities. I had to be kind of uh, on the lookout uh, for them. And another thing to add, there were, in my day, the idea of cl the club chaplain was just beginning to happen. And so I had a couple of club chaplains uh, that were coming to the training ground, at one at Bournemouth and one at QPR. And I obviously being a Christian player, they were, you know, here's an ally, they're straight with me. But then the conversations that panned out from there, because of my relationship with the chaplain and the other players as well, was, was quite the thing. Now there's chaplains, I think, in virtually every league club in the UK, it just shows the influence now uh, that that they've had yeah and just touching on that <clears throat> um what i've seen or what i see in sport today and particularly in football is there's a greater openness to spirituality or a, a greater uh, or maybe what, what am a word i'm looking for maybe a greater courage of players to be open about their faith now i'm, I'm even talking about people of other religions. So you see a Mo Salah or a Mane, they score their goal. Yeah. Bow down to the ground, they say a prayer to Allah. Of course, I don't believe it's heard because Allah doesn't exist. But what I'm saying is they're they're unashamed of their religion in front of 40, 50,000 people. I've seen Alison Becker, you know, when he walks out, he puts his hands up to the air. I believe he's a Christian. I, I think Bobby Firmino might have become a Christian through Becker in the last year or two. And you see him doing something similar sometimes. Uh, did you find that? Like, were, were players more open to spirituality and religious talk? Whereas you compare that to our secular culture today, and it's a bit of a no-no yeah. to speak by God or do something religious in public. You know, keep that to yourself in your own private heart, but don't yeah. do it publicly. Do, do you think there's something to that, that footballers are sort of, Bit like that U2 song, they're still still haven't found what I'm looking for. They're they're searching yeah. for some interest at least in spiritual things. Yeah, yeah. In my day, it wasn't so. Um, but with the influx of the, of continental players into the Premier League, all of a sudden the nations have come, and so you do have all these different uh, religions. And you're quite right. Um, a lot of those players have been very open about them now. There are those players that will cross themselves when they go on the field. And it's just yeah. superstitious, quite yeah. frankly. It's just yeah. superstitious. Um, uh, but uh, there's been more of a, an openness in terms of talking about it within that sphere. Um, so I, I, when I worked for the BBC, I actually I did a programme on one of the uh, primetime football shows. I asked them... If, the BBC bosses, if I could do a programme on Christianity in football. And they said, no, you could do one on religion in football, but you've got to include 
some of the big religions. And so it was easy to find, you know, a Muslim and a Jew and, you know, the Christian. The Christian witness came the strongest in the actual in the actual piece. But that was in the early 2000s. So I just retired from playing and I was working for the BBC, which I guess we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, that just showed a change of flavour, a willingness to even have a programme like that on a primetime football show. Um, and then with regards to f footballers and, you know, searching for that, you know, that glory, I guess you're in the, you're in the arena and, you know, I say to football fans, you know, you, you were made to worship, right? And, uh, and what you're doing on a Saturday is you, you're going to do this thing. It's, a, it's an act of worship. You're coming and you want to do it together because we were made for that community to do this, to praise the big and beautiful and glorious and, 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 and the sense of victory and, and that. Uh, but you are, your focus is on the players. You were made to focus and find this fulfillment and this greater glory in the Lord God uh, through Jesus Christ. Um, and so there's something in God's common grace in sport that we find echoes in our soul, even created in the image of God, that, that we're made for something more. So, yeah, there is. And then footballers. So if the fans are, are there and they're cheering it and they're loving it and the footballers are on the field creating it and doing it. And so there's something in them that because when you score and when you win, you you feel that elation, that 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 worshipful feeling almost, um, but you know it doesn't last. And so there's always that it doesn't last. You come down and you can't, whereas with the Lord, uh, not that we're always on a spiritual, emotional experience, but, but that glory lasts and we're always pressing on with the Lord. Um, and so there is this sort of uh, echoes, as I like to say, echoes in terms of common grace, created in the image of God that we see in the players and that the fans feel and uh, as a christian footballer i say in the book I, one of my great heroes is the eric little you know made famous by the again by the film chariots of fire and yeah you know christian international rugby player olympic uh, champion but goes as a missionary and dies in china yeah. and in, in the film words attributed to little when he speaks to his sister uh, jenny uh, and he says god made me for a purpose for china uh, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Not to run would be to dishonor him and to run well, to honor him. And that's the way I combine my uh, football with my Christian faith, how it integrated. When I, when I worked with integrity and, and did something to please the, the crowd, and when I scored and the crowd roared, I felt God's pleasure. Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely part of your book where you draw on Eric Little and then you make that point that when you scored, you felt God's pleasure. I think it's a lovely thing. Sometimes Christians sort of go to the extreme that you can't play professional football. You can't go down that route because if you do, you know, you'll not be a Christian. Or it'll be an idol. And, you know, any job can become an idol. Yeah. Not just sport. And um, there's that lovely balance in your book that when you became a Christian, everything fell into place, which is what you said earlier. God, football used to be your God. Now Jesus was your Lord. Mm -hmm. And God football just fell into its proper place you didn't have to give it up you just had to put it back where it belonged you know and I think that's a, a lovely part of the book um if if a footballer was to ask you say today you met some Premier League player and he says what well, what is the gospel 
how would you explain it to a footballer with no biblical background, no church upbringing? He's never held a Bible in his hands. Can you just give us a, a, a one-minute, two-minute summary of the gospel? How would you explain it to a footballer? Yeah, of what I might say to, to, to that player. Um, well, it depends how much time I've got. If I haven't got much time, yeah. uh, it'd be... But, but what I... What, I would say that the, what the gospel is, the good news of what God has done uh, to, to, to save uh, people from their sins through the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, his life, death and resurrection. But, but, but I would actually probably tap into a little bit of that common grace stuff, even with what this player does, you know, and tap into the creating the image of God for glory, for worship and what you're doing. And then, but then I, and then I would arc from that back to God as creator, and I wouldn't be afraid to use the Bible because ultimately, you know, the, the word I trust in the word of God to do its work. And but I, I would do it in such a way as I'd probably go back to a little bit of Genesis creation in the image of God, talk about the fall and then talk about. Yeah, you can see sin everywhere in this world and the effects, because I've done enough evangelistic events with loads of unbelievers, football fans, and they go, yeah, I can see it. It's everywhere. Look at the rape. Look at the wars. Look at the this. Look at the relational issues. I'll get into their own lives now, your own problems, your own sin, your own guilt. Now, if God is holy, what must he do with this? And I'd bring in justice of God then, um, because everyone has a sense of justice uh, deep down. Uh, most footballers will argue about, you know, in training about a ball being over the line and it's not fair. Or if they're not in the team on the Saturday, it's not fair. They should be played. Um, and then I would, you know, obviously the universe, universality of sin and the uh, the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would use a few, a few texts and, and probably as well, uh, some players, even if they're not being schooled in the Bible, um, they have an understanding, a little bit of heard of Genesis, Adam and Eve, you know, that that kind of thing. Um, they've seen the the big uh, banners at stadiums with John 3.16. So I might use a text like that with a little synopsis of the gospel um, to, to bring them to, to the word of God and, and even leave them with with that and then trust the, the Lord to do the rest. And uh, I, th I think, I you know, Jesus is our great example of, of the of the perfect evangelist and and he uses you know a different tact with different people as well um never ignoring their sin but in a way with a woman at the well it's different to others and um so yeah i think i'd, I'd be aware of the personality i was with but those would be the broad strokes of what i'd use you know connect with where they're at you know common grace image of god stuff arc back to creation and sin uh talk about how they see that in the, the world their own heart get to their own heart god's judgment and then god's great love in the gospel bring it to even the text they may have heard of uh, and seen at football grounds themselves yeah that's that's great um what i like in your book is you you weave the gospel in at different points quite mm. subtly in a really nice way not forced comes in quite naturally in different chapters uh, at one point, I think you quote Augustine, uh, oh God, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Uh, I played a bit of competitive sport and I always find talking to non-Christian mates in the team, the, the whole idea of satisfaction, where do you find meaning in life? And mm. is life satisfying for you? It was a really helpful door in with them. Remember Chris Evans, the radio, BBC One radio host said um 
I made it to the top, and when I got there, I found that there was nothing there, <laughs> and yeah. it's that emptiness. And they they do, you know, they're searching for God, but Romans tells us they're actually running from God because they're searching for satisfaction in all the wrong places, mm. you know. And mm. uh, you see Russell Brand, the comedian who's on YouTube or on Twitter these days, doing these videos all the time about finding meaning in life philosophical nonsense about what he thinks we are as human beings and how to find meaning. And it's just, he's totally dissatisfied and he's, he's searching in the dark, groping in the dark for all these ways to find meaning, but looking for it in all the wrong places, you know, but one of the things in your book that comes through so clearly as you weave the gospel in, but one of the things I appreciated about it is that you're just crystal clear on what the gospel is, you know, in the past, there's been some sports people who profess faith in Christ, but when you hear them explain it and articulate it, mm -hmm. it's not a gospel. And one of the things that's been most striking to me and encouraging, Gavin, is just your clarity on mm -hmm. what the gospel is. Um, mm -hmm. So let me ask you, how did you then move from pitch? You ended up in punditry, being a football commentator at matches and across the world. How did you move from pitch punditry to pulpit? What was the move into Christian ministry? Into ministry. So, uh, yeah, I retired from playing in 2002. Uh, and then usually as a footballer, I mean, they've got more options now, but, you know, it was then coaching, management, or what was coming into play more and more is ex-players uh, going on TV and radio, uh, the media side of things. And my, I've been captains at all my teams and my coaches were saying, you should be a manager, you should be a manager. My dad had been a manager. So there was that leadership there. But I've been pretty media friendly. So I thought, well, I'll try this for a while. And it went really well. Started again, you know, for a couple of hundred bucks. I was working a 16-hour day doing commentary, learning my trade. And it went well. I was in the BBC's top team uh, doing World Cups, European Championships, all the domestic stuff. Face was on TV in front of millions every week. In fact, I was more well-known doing my punditry even than when I was a player because you're in people's living rooms, your face is on the screen, and you know, who could forget a face like this, you know? It's <laughs> that bald head coming into your living room, you know, three times a week, you won't forget it. So, uh, and they were grooming me for presenting roles as well. Um, at one time, I was on two channels at once in uh, on a BBC One and BBC Two. One was live and one was pre-recorded. But I never felt it was going to be forever or in a really long-term way. Something deep down, I couldn't put my finger on it, but um, I'd been a Christian since I was 18. I'd done evangelistic things. I was happy to talk about my faith and football and all these things. I never had a desire for church ministry. One of my mentors, Tony Roke, uh, uh, a great Christian man and friend, had said to me, couple of years after I retired from playing football, you're going to be a preacher of God's word, Gavin. I said, no way, Tommy, no way. Don't feel that at all. And then I did the World Cup in Germany in 2006. So kind of like the zenith of my career to date in the second dream career of punditry. And my wife got very ill. And as often is the case with, with suffering, it can recalibrate your focus, as you know, and, and you begin to kind of dive deeper into scriptures and prayer. And I was just in the pastoral epistles. I remember she was in a hospital for a couple of weeks and I was reading 2 Timothy 4 where Paul is telling 
Timothy to preach the word, Timothy, preach the word in and out of season for the, basically for the sake of the future of Christianity. And I was struck by what a charge this is, you know, in light of heaven and hell and people's souls and um, an eternal value. And something lit inside. And, you know, I'd, you know, I've been in a career where I'd led men into the arena. I understood this kind of idea of glory and, and, and sacrifice. And I'd like, I enjoyed addressing the men in the dressing room, you know, as a captain. I, I then in, moved into this world of, of presenting and communication and creating pieces for people to, to, to understand football, give insight. Um, and I thought, what, what if I'm called to this? You know, I'd, I'd love to take the Bible. And I taught a few things in Bible studies, but nothing more. So as a subjective feel, I could have been totally wrong. I went and spoke to my church leadership and they recognized certain giftings and said, we'll give you some opportunities. And why don't you start some uh, at your old stomping ground, Cambridge University, just do a basic Old Testament and New Testament course. So I was working TV, radio, I'm doing live shows at the weekend, then driving up to Cambridge. Um, and I'm in with all the guys that are going into church ministry on a Monday and a Tuesday. Uh, and they just want to talk about what I said about Liverpool on the Saturday and Manchester United on the Sunday. And I'm saying, but I want to study the Bible. And, and it was fine. You know, I love to talk to those guys. But uh, once I started studying, I was still doing my other job. The flame just grew more and I started to preach a little bit you know I was given the you know the late night shift on a Sunday night 15 minutes and when there was only about 10 people in the uh, in the church I think the vicar actually fell asleep during one of my uh, he really did he was a big guy and he he would sit there with his eyes closed on a Sunday evening and uh, I thought you know you think he's just being holy and just like listening to the sermon and, and then his arm just dropped into the into the uh from the pew onto the floor one Sunday night. I actually fell asleep during my sermon. So the Lord humbled me early. And um, anyway, as I was doing this, then I said to my wife, I dropped the bombshell. I said, I think I'm going to give up this second career and, you know, spend some time in preparation for potential church ministry to, to you know, to learn, to learn the Bible more. And, uh, and then what about if we look at doing it, elsewhere and not here where my profile's so high and people just identify me as this footballer or the you know the tv pundit guy uh, we've been coming to canada quite a bit we knew the area and i said what about if we move here for a bit uh and I'll go back after i finish my master's studies and so we came to calgary alberta in 2008 i, I literally finished the european championships with the bbc uh, in in the June, and uh, we moved in the July, July to um, to Calgary, and, and and I left it. So yeah, it was quite the thing, and everyone was so shocked at what I'd done. They thought it was crazy, um, but it, I needed to come away. Uh, now we ended up staying here. I was talking to churches about going back in 2011. I'm an associate pastor now, but but the Lord has opened up doors for me to go speak globally. Uh, amazingly now and so a, a lot of a, quite a bit of my ministry is, uh, is is speaking and preaching and doing evangelism these kinds of things one of the things I appreciated in your book is your honesty at different points in your footballing career but also your honesty with that move to Canada you speak quite vividly of that morning leaving London driving to Heathrow getting on a plane 
and the the sense of um, pressure you felt and what I what you, you said as your mum drove up and looked at you, you thought, what am I doing? You know, yeah. Yeah. taking the whole family and it's a brand new chapter. But I, I, I think that's one of the great things about the book. You draw the reader in and we sort of feel your anxiety of such a big move and how it's going to go and how is it going to pan out and is this the right move and now you're living off your savings you've, mm. you've for three years and i think mm. it's very thing and obviously the lord has led you all this way and wonderful to see he's he's brought you into the pulpit from the pitch um, yes. so what's what's similar about being a pastor and pulpit ministry compared to being a captain on the pitch and what's different um well you don't have a super fitness that's for sure being a pastor <laughs> i have to i have to work hard at my fitness uh, every day just to keep it ticking over um i think in terms of similarities is you know you're you know you're you're in, you're leading as a captain you're leading people and is a team uh, towards a goal and uh, and towards glory um, and so there is that kind of shepherding aspect uh, of being a captain amongst men on the field uh, that you are with your people in, in the church there is that idea of servant leadership as well um, I, I remember Kevin Keegan a uh, great manager but he was a great captain for, for Liverpool as well and England and someone said of Kevin Keegan that he was such a great captain because when you couldn't give any more, Keegan will pick you up and carry you. And isn't that just a great, you know, illustration of a servant leader on on the field in the arena? But that's what you're doing with with people in the church. But but um, uh, so so similarities there, um, similarities in even in the Christian life, and uh, and and I often make these parallels to people because it's biblical language. The Apostle Paul talks in terms of uh, you know, athletic metaphors and, and and spiritual disciplines and having the, the discipline, you know, you learn in football uh, to be a professional athlete for all those years and stay there. You need to, you know, you get, you need to have spiritual disciplines in your life if you will maintain uh, your spiritual fitness and grow. Uh, and if you will stand firm and stay the course. Um, and uh, God has provided these common means of grace that we, we need to uh, tap into. Um, and so there will be some similarities that, that I often tap into with people. And, and even with regards to suffering, you know, we get fit spiritually through suffering in God's economy and, and, and providential design. And just as in professional athletic and professional football, you go through that pain barrier. You know it's hurting. You know you're, you're going through it. But if you didn't know there was fitness at the end of it, uh, you'd give up. And for the Christian, we can have purpose in suffering. And this is a big thing, as you'll know, for for people that you're pastoring is that in God's sovereignty, he designs suffering for to strengthen our faith and to grow us in spiritual fitness. So even little things like that, uh, there were, there's some good similarities. And, um, but, the, but the difference is, obviously, um, you, you know, you're dealing with people's souls. Uh, what I say on a Sunday, you know, I talk about stepping into the pulpit uh, and and yet I've been in front of millions of people on TV or 100,000 in a stadium. And yet what I'm speaking in front of 200 people this Sunday 
is of much more significance in terms of its eternal weight and value because God's glory uh, is at stake and people's souls and eternal state uh, is at stake. So that's where the weight of, of the glory of and responsibility of the office of, of pastor uh, always hits me, I think, you know, weekly and every time I step up into the pulpit. Uh, what Christian books have uh, played a big influence on you, uh, particularly as you've moved into Christian ministry? What books do you find you go back to or what ones do you think have had a really seminal influence on you as a pastor? Yeah. Um, Piper, Desiring God, that blew my paradigms in terms of the doctrines of grace and the joy, uh, you know, that you that you can have. Um I've read uh, not all of the works of John Owen, but in terms of like uh, studying sin, it's like Owen di di digs to the depths and there's nowhere else to go. Uh, just quite remarkable. I think he's worth the work in reading the thick works. Um, I, I love anything by Sinclair Ferguson, quite quite frankly. Um, and I've, I really enjoyed uh, On Being a Pastor, uh, by Ali, uh, Alistair Begg and Derek Prime. I thought that was a really good practical uh, practical book. Um, and uh, I think there's one called Pastoral Ministry of the Pastors, like William Still. Uh, yeah. It's a little one. What's it yeah. called now? I've dipped into it a couple of, I've read it a couple of times. The Work of the Pastor. The Work, the work. of the Pastor. It's yeah. a good, a lot of wisdom. Yeah, a lot of wisdom in it. And, and I kind of, in my book, I've tried to kind of use a drop stuff in along the way because I want people to see that God is the God of all of life and that the Bible is the answers as we deal with these kind of issues of life, of, of suffering, of family, of death, of winning, of losing. And, um, and, and there's great wisdom in, uh, in Still's book um, on, on that. And so, you know, I, I, I could go on, but uh, uh, one other one I, that I really enjoyed was um, George Mueller, um, a man of prayer. Uh, and I've read stuff on Mueller quite a bit in terms of just being a man of prayer and developing a prayer life. It's, it's been very helpful as an example. Yeah. We were talking earlier before the podcast that um, you're concerned that men don't read anymore. Yeah. One of the things that I like about your book um, is that I can see, and I mean this in the best sense, that um, you know you're a you're a man's man. You're you're a leader. Clearly, you were a captain of Premier League teams. But even as a Christian now, and even as a Christian pastor, I can see you wanting to lead and encourage men to sort of uh, be strong Christian men mm. in the home, in marriage, as fathers. Um, what do you think is the problem? with men in general in society today and mm. Christian in particular, when you mentioned earlier, you know, men aren't reading anymore. So do yeah. you want to comment a bit on that? Yeah. I mean, um, maybe just a, this big subject. I mean, it's one of the big issues of our day because if you get the men, you get the home, you get the church, you get the culture. Uh, and it's good for women when that happens. It's good for children uh, when men step up to what they're called to be. Um, I think there's a, a, a a twofold thing. I think men need to be called um, 
uh, and stirred and there's a rebuke there, but they also need to be encouraged. Um, you know, men are told today that, that masculinity is toxic. And I say, no, masculinity is not toxic. Sin is toxic. Masculinity, in, in particular, biblical masculinity, is the answer to much of the toxicity in the culture today, where men will assume the role that they're called to assume. So you've got men that are being bashed down by that and being told that what they are is not, is not good. Um, and uh, at the same time, you've got men who have abdicated that, uh, I think, passivity, you know, abuse gets the headlines, and surely there is abuse, but uh, but passivity is the silent killer of manhood. That's what I say. But, you know, abuse will get the headlines, but passivity is the silent killer of manhood, because it was that way at the fall, where Adam stood by silently, and he said not a word when his wife was being uh, tempted by the serpent and getting the word of God wrong, and he didn't step up and protect his wife in between her and the devil, so on and so forth. And so I think then this is in in the church is that men need to have a vision of biblical manhood painted uh, for them which ultimately you cannot circumvent the cross of christ if you're going to present biblical manhood because christ is our chief example of what that looks like um and uh, and i've seen men literally grow as chests have been puffed out as they've seen what a noble uh, thing that they're called to and can be as Christian men. Um, and I think that it translates uh, into the culture, because even as we've talked about echoes in sport, for instance, of servant leadership, that people go, oh, that's great. I love that kind of captain on the field. Yeah. And where does that find its roots? Actually, in the captain himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the captain of our souls, who stepped on the field as the great substitute and rescued his, the, the team from defeat through the sacrifice of his own soul uh, and his righteous performance. Um, and of course you see even there as I'm talking, there's something that, you, that stirs in a man and you call that man to his, his responsibilities that find their roots in being created as man, not, not woman, but as man. Yeah. And, and I think just to finish on that is that um, in the church, I think we need to be really solid in our teaching on biblical manhood uh, and not be uh, general, you know, oh, kind, uh, peaceful. Yeah, that's general Christian. Well, what is it to be a man and not a woman? That, back to creation and creation order stuff is really, really important. Even as we're seeing creation order attacked in the culture today, you know, no binary sexes and gender fluidity and all of this. No, you need to have a firm grip of Genesis 1 and 2. And see how it goes back to being created male and female and how roles and responsibilities literally flow out from Genesis 1, 26, 27 into Genesis 2. And if you can translate those kind of things to men in the culture and then bring them back to the Bible, I see it as an evangelistic opportunity. I see the whole thing on manhood, womanhood, sexuality, marriage. What's going on in the culture? I see it as, OK, it's a big crisis, but the church needs to be right on it and stay holy. The culture is always wrong. Church needs to be right and stay holy. But I see it as a great uh, opportunity to show the culture a beautiful, flourishing counterculture according to God's design and say, and its doors open then. Uh, now, we'll, we might get hated for it, but we might win some for the, for, the, for the gospel. Yeah. It's one of the things that stands out in your book, Gavin. As I said, I hope many people will read it. I'm reading it to my son. So if there are any dads listening, I would encourage you, if your son loves football, 
if you watch a bit of English football, get this book, start reading it to your son. Uh, I hope people will read it because it's a fascinating read just into the life of a professional sportsman. It's fast paced. It's interesting. It's funny. I had me roaring with laughter about some of the locker room banter and jokes and tricks you all played on each other. Um, But what I really love about it is the clarity of the gospel. And also one of the things that I'll always think of you as not just a professional footballer or a punditry person, commentator or even a preacher in a pulpit, but a family man. And I'm going to read a little excerpt from your book that I think really captures your heartbeat. You say um, in your chapter, A Family Portrait, where you really beautifully take time to speak about your wife, Amanda, your son, Jake, and then your daughter, Ava. You say this, a man wants to leave a legacy in his life. If my wife and children are my legacy, then that is enough for me. I've had many roles in life as a footballer, pundit and pastor, but my first and most important role is as a Christian husband and father. And I have loved this role more than any other. My family is, as it were, my letter of recommendation for my leadership in the church. I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful summary of what, where your heart's at, Gavin. And uh, I hope many people will read it and take it on board and uh, live by that example as well. So, Gavin, thank you so much for coming on the uh, afterward, a conversation about books, reading in the church. Uh, I've been doing this for uh, about a year. So we've done a, at least 12. And uh, let me just say to the listeners, this is my favorite book so far, A Greater Glory. Uh, from pitch to pulpit. Now I'm biased because I love the beautiful game. It's the reason we were given feet by our creator God. But uh, I'm biased, but it is brilliantly written and a fascinating insight into a professional footballer's life. But most of all, what shines through is the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. And as you say on the back, there is more to life than football, fame and fortune. There is a greater glory and a greater glory to be had, a greater joy and a greater glory to be had. So I can't encourage people enough to get this book. Final thing I'll say is if you know anybody who's not a Christian, but they're into soccer and will have watched any Premier League and will have heard of Gavin Peacock, get this book and give it to them because it's non-offensive. It's it's not cringy trying to convert them from page one. It's just an autobiography in which a Christian man tells the story of his life in the Premier League, but they will hear the gospel. So I would encourage you to get one for yourself and also get one and give it away to somebody who's not a Christian. So, uh, Gavin, thanks again for being on the show and uh, being on this podcast. Great to catch up with you again and um, every blessing to you and Amanda uh, in your ministry and life there in Canada. Thanks, Johnny. It's been a real pleasure.